Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Adam Wolf grew up in Northeast Ohio, where he attended Cleveland State University and completed his master's degree at Rice University's Shepherd School of Music. After playing its out-of-town tryout at Houston's Alley Theater, Adam was offered the drum chair on Frank Wildhorn's Wonderland when it transferred to Broadway in the spring of 2011. Adam later subbed on shows as diverse as Rent, Evita, Matilda the Musical, Avenue Q, Cats, Hello Dolly, Anastasia, The Prom, and many more. Adam's most recent chairs include the 2017's Bandstand on Broadway, Jerry Springer, the opera, and Clueless, the musical. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. Today, my guest is Adam Wolf. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Clayton. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. I wanted to ask you, you were born in Texas or born in Ohio? Ohio. Yeah, born in Ohio, um, Akron, a little suburb of Akron. Um, I did my undergrad in Ohio at Cleveland State, and then I moved to Texas, um, Gosh, 2006? Yeah, 2006, I moved to Texas. Mm. Um, I was there. I did my master's at Rice. I was down there doing my master's. I was there until uh, 2011 when I moved up here. So just past you, 10 years. You were in Akron. Uh, were you a big fan of uh, LeBron and them? Totally, of course. Actually, <laughs> so so I went to a, a private, uh, like private Christian school, parochial school, you know, thing. He went to St. Vincent, St. Mary, which is was like a sibling school in sort of the same kind of league, except their athletics were so much better than my school. So we never played them, mm. you know? Um, but I mean, yeah, we, everybody knew about him because he was, he's pretty much our age, like my age. Um, we're pretty, we're very similar in age. I think he's like a year or two younger than me. So we were, you know, uh, juniors and seniors in high school hearing about him already. And the Cavs are like wanting to like draft him and like, whatever it was like, it was crazy. You know, did he start out on the Cavs? I can't remember. Did he? I think, I think he, he did. did. I think he was like a really early draft pick, right? He was, they, I mean, I don't remember if he, um, I have to remember now. I know he didn't do college, uh, but yeah, I mean, he. Oh, that's right. Like he, every, went, he went from mm-hmm. Cleveland to Miami to. Yeah. And then Cleveland. back to Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Then to, to LA. LA. But yeah, <laughs> everybody knew about him at that time. It was, it was like, he really was like sort of the chosen son, you know, like mm. way early. It was very cool. Really cool to watch what he did there. Do you play sports too? <laughs> do I? Yeah. No, no I, I was the band band geek for sure. So what was your, you grew up in, you said in Akron, right? I grew up in a suburb of Akron called Talmadge. Okay. Like a little town. Yeah. What was your first musical memory? First, wow. First musical memory, man. Um, actually I do. I have a pretty clear one. So I started taking um, lessons like, so I went to these like kind of smaller schools, you know, there wasn't like huge music programs, these, the schools that I, I went to, but I, my mom signed me up for lessons, um, at a little, uh, mom and pop music store in Kent, Ohio, like kind of a neighboring town called Woodsy's music, which I think might still be there. Um, and I was so fortunate. My teacher was a UNT grad. So this is literally like mom just like found a music store, went in said, Hey, I want to, you know, son wants to do drum lessons. Like what can you have a teacher? Sure. Got a guy, his name was Rich Maslock. He was a UNT grad. Um, so for those who don't know what's UNT university of North Texas. So super like elite, crazy jazz program. 
I, th- I think I'm not a jazz guy, so I don't, I don't know, but I was very fortunate to get someone who had a really, who was just really good at what he did. And he, you know, was good enough to send me on a, I think a pretty good path as a little beginner. Cause you never know what you're going to get in one of those like little mom and pop shops somewhere. You just never know what level of instruction you're going to get. I think lessons were like seven twenty five a half hour wow. or something. It was like, it was crazy. It was something like that. Um, but yeah, what we say the, um, yeah, so we did that first musical memory. I took lessons with him for like a year, and then I joined like the eighth grade band or something, uh, seventh or eighth grade band in my middle school. And one of my first lessons was just playing that like concert B flat scale, you know, playing the snare drum with the band and having it all of a sudden, having never played music with anyone else before live, playing like along with, you know, CDs and stuff or whatever at the time, but all of a sudden playing live with people. This was, of course, like a group of, you know, like 30, 40 kids or whatever playing this huge sound. It was like super, it was really cool. That's my first, I think my first real musical memory is that. Did you have musical parents? Yeah, somewhat. My dad played drums. Um, he passed away when I was young, so I never got to see him uh, play. But he, um, my first drum set was his drum set. It was like an old Rogers kit. Um, no idea what happened to it. <laughs> it's probably mm. it's long gone at this point. Um, and uh, my mom writes songs. Um, I don't know if she really like reads music, but she writes down like lyrics and chords and stuff. And, and for a long time, like did, um, kind of songwriting, I think it's kind of a, like creative outlet, you know, do you think it was their influence that made you say, you know, I want to play drums. No, I remember very clearly what it was. I had a couple friends again in like fifth, sixth grade, and one of them started playing guitar and one of them started playing bass. So that kind of left drums. <laughs> You know, as far as that kind of thing goes, um, I had been in like the fifth grade band. I play, I started on clarinet and I was like pretty good at clarinet. So they moved me to trombone because we had nothing low in the band, which is not remotely the same thing. Um, and I think that's where I learned that I have no, I have very little like natural intonation, you know, cause the trombone is just a giant tuning slide. Like you, you gotta, you have to use your ear to make that sound come out the right way. The clarinet felt like a video game, like press these three keys and the G comes out. You know what I mean? That's what it felt like to me. It was sort of, you can kind of like the, do the right thing and the right sound comes out. I'm sure it was never, you know, fifth grade, your intonation is pretty wide at that point. But you know, when I moved over to a brass instrument, it was like, oh no, this is way not right at all. Um, yeah. What was, what was, was the last, the drums. What was the last time you played clarinet? Oh man, like probably fifth grade, honestly. It's so been a somebody, long time. Somebody put a clarinet in front of your face right now and said, I want you to play giant steps. Would you be like, <laughs> be like no, that's not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh man. So <laughs> what were you, some of your influences back then? I mean, you wanted to play drums. Did you like have people that you looked up to as far as drummers other than, I guess you didn't really get to know your father that well, but mm-hmm. were there other drummers in town that you looked up to? Yeah, some I was I was good enough to get to um, I was lucky enough I should say excuse me to get to hear my teacher Rich play a few times with his band. He was I think is is probably typical like in a kind of smaller area like Ohio. He was like a semi pro guy. Like he had kids and he worked at um there was some sort of like a glass factory job or something. But he had a a couple groups he would play with. So I got to hear his jazz group play a few times, which is really cool. Um, through that I actually met a bass player. Who I wound up playing with at his church periodically um, throughout like high school and college, like really good um, bass player um, named Sam. I'm trying to remember his last name, uh, it's, it's escaping me right now. He passed away a couple years ago, but he was one of the musicians who I also like got to know a little bit, and he was kind enough to um, just be so generous, like playing with you know I was like you know 15 years old playing at this like really big church, you know, 
um, kind of in that, like, uh, I guess you'd call it now kind of a, like a Nashville, you know, um, contemporary Christian style. You know what I mean? It wasn't gospel. It was, it was the, the other version that kind of resembles country kind of resembled rock at the time, you know, hmm. it was that kind of thing. So that was really cool. Um, as far as the drumming influences and stuff, I was really into a, another friend of mine asked me to do a podcast a couple of years ago when I was doing bandstand. And that was where I realized I've always been into music. That's kind of like a narrative music. I just didn't know it literally until like two years ago. <laughs> I had no idea. And then I was thinking back as he was asking me similar questions and I was like, Oh yeah, those first like few songs I like wanted to learn on drums. One of them was like scenes from an Italian restaurant, Billy Joel. You know, which <laughs> you, were, you were just talking about with Joe. Exactly. I think, right? <laughs> Joe I still don't know how to play right, but yeah. anyway, <laughs> I, I loved that. Like um, that one of the first time I heard that song, I, I loved like all the different sections to it and how they kind of like put them together was super cool. But also, I loved that like the song had this like plot to it. It was like a it was like a TV show or a movie or something. You know, in this song. Um, so that was a song that I learned. And um, another song I brought to Rich that I wanted to learn was that, uh, I don't know which one it was. It was off No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom record, like their big, that came out like, well, like 94, 96, something like that, 96, 98, maybe. Um, and that also had a couple songs on it that were like these really big, like narrative, you know, um, with like multiple sections, you know, kind of songs. So I was really into stuff like that. And I just, I had no idea that that was even going back to like my earliest, again, you're asking about musical memories. My earliest ones were like these kind of large scale narrative ask things, you know, American pie by Don McLean. Mm -hmm. Is that something that would that count in that category? That's not really, I suppose I'm not like, I'm trying to remember like the whole like arc of the song. Mm. I suppose it's been, it's not, not something I'm like, as deeply familiar with i remember the very first song i ever learned this wasn't a um a uh narrative th- a narrative song but that song shine by collective soul you remember that song mm, kind of yeah it was like they were real popular like this they're kind of like i guess like southern rock they're still out there doing stuff um but that song was the first song i ever learned on drums mm. i wrote down the entire thing like transcribed it you know I think it was the produced part it's kind of an unusual kind of unnatural part i think it might have been a produced part on the record but i was super into that song too you know, so no doubt, collective mm-hmm. soul is is this the mid? That was like, like mid nineties, yeah, like mid late nineties. The okay. collective soul, the um, the uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Shane Evans is the drummer in Collective Soul. Their their self titled album, which came out in again around that same time, like ninety seven, ninety eight. Um, I played that, and I could play that entire record front to back at like fourteen, fifteen. Now I wasn't playing it as good as him, I'm sure. But it was like very simple, like rock patterns and just really great, like sounds. I remember being enamored early on, even at that age with like every track had like a different snare drum sound mm. and kick drums probably too. And there, and even now I go back and listen to them and it's like, oh man, all these sounds are just, they're like, they're so killing. And they're so of that era, like these kind of real, real cracky, snappy um, and roomy, you know, snare drum sounds that are kind of that like nineties, nineties vibe. And I go back and listen to them. I'm like, oh, I just love it. It's like my favorite sounds like still. You know? You're going to make me go back and check this out. Collective Soul, the first album, the self-titled one, 1995. Right? The first one was Hints, Allegations, and Things Left Unsaid. That was the one with Shine. And then the, the, the self-titled one came out a couple years later. I remember. that was like a, It was this weird, it was this funny, like, if you bought it early, it was a blue, like, liner. And they sold it in a yellow case, so it looked <laughs> green. It was this crazy, like, I remember this very clearly. 
Shine, good night, good guy, wasting time, sister don't cry. Mm-hmm. I don't know any. I got to go back to listen to this. Yeah, stuff. Gel was a really popular one off that, or When the River, Where the River, December. That was probably the biggest single off that record. It was kind of a ballady, acoustic guitar driven thing. Hmm. For the world I know, that's one that winds up in movies and stuff sometimes or did for a while, I think. You know, okay. that's a great record. It's great. I love that album. Did you have uh, bands in high school that were in the vein of these? kind of groups that you liked? Not really. I wound up playing in a, um, a punk band when I was like yes. 16, 17. Yeah. It was a Christian punk band. We were called the God Squad. What? Really? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Christian punk. I've never <laughs> yeah, heard that little, before. There was a Christian punk scene in Northeast Ohio. And the band that came out of it um, that you, you might actually know, I don't know, it was a band called Reliant K. Mm. Named after the car, this like this like crappy Chrysler car. Yes, I remember yeah. that car. Wow, the yeah. K car. Yeah, there's a yeah, the K car. Yeah, it was a band called Reliant K who was in <laughs> um in that little scene with us. So we were we would open for them pretty often, which is pretty fun. Wow, that was like before they were like that. Now they're I think they're like Nashville based and they're like on a big Christian label and they've been a big band for like 20 years or something. Now they've been a big band for a long time. God, you're like opening up my 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 whole mind to a whole different thing. Now. That's very cool, man. My favorite thing. I was talking to um, who was I telling about this? I think I was telling Daniel Glass about this. But there was a that was remember there was remember like the neo swing thing that popped up again like yeah. late '90s. Okay, mm-hmm. there was a Christian one called the W's. There was a Christian like neo swing band who I saw in concert once. It was really fun, and they had a song called uh uh the devil is bad or something like you are the devil and you are bad was their big their big single which is hilarious <laughs> you know wow so what does a uh, a punk a christian punk band are they, are they angry you know they get up there and they <laughs> one two three four and they scream yeah, that about was the, the vibe really? that was the vibe it wasn't like i don't know if it was like angry i don't know what it was i can't remember what any of the songs were ours were like on the poppier side of things maybe more like analogous to like um something like a good charlotte maybe or something of the time Mm. I don't know. It was on the poppier, punk, punkier, poppier side or whatever that would be. I remember there was a band in the 80s from Japan that was a Christian heavy metal band. I can't remember their names. Yeah. They had the long hair and they'd throw Bibles out in the, uh, wow. into the, the audience, man. I think at a punk mm-hmm. Christian punk show that maybe they should throw the Bibles at people. <laughs> <laughs> Just whip, whip it at you from across the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious oh man so <laughs> you so, yeah, decide- I was doing that I was playing in churches a lot actually like I, I, I uh, you asked me if I was from Talmadge you asked me where I was from Talmadge when I grew up there was known as being it was like literally in the game of Trivial Pursuit as being the town with the most churches per capita wow like in the country or something it may still be for all I know but there were like churches on like every corner like every kind of you know little offshoot denomination branch, whatever you could think of, you know, was out there somewhere. So, um, and that was true of a lot of Northeast Ohio, I think then. Um, so I was playing in a lot of churches. I was playing in my own home church. I was playing at, um, one of the bigger, like non-denominational type churches as well, you know, in their special music stuff and, and that kind of thing. I was very lucky. I got to play with a lot of musicians who were a lot older than me, a lot more seasoned than me, you mm. know, um, which I think was helpful, you know, for my development. You know, a few years ago, I was playing in this church. It's a, I don't know if it's offshoot of Grace Church, but mm-hmm. it was called Grace Church. And I never knew about the thing called worship music. Because I started, they were like, mm-hmm. okay, learn these songs, you know, this by Hillsong and. Right. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, Chris Tomlin. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
And then after I started learning, it's like these songs are actually cool. So it's like rock music, yeah. but it's you no, know, this Christian music, and mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that it's like there's you know there's worship music, then there's gospel music, still like kind of a segregated thing. Yeah. But I'm like, it's all the same thing. They're they're spreading the gospel, but mm-hmm. it was just fascinating to learn a whole whole subset of of gospel music. I don't know if it's a subset. It's just a separate right. genre. Yeah, you it's almost, you're right. It's almost like a subset of like, it's like a, it's like rock and country. And now a lot of it's gone very poppy, like all kind of like, but with this uh, religious bend to it, but it's like, it's very similar to like a lot of, I think it's all like just very Nashville sounding to me, you know? Mm. It was a lot of fun to play. Yeah, for sure. Those are like really like, um, like currently, I remember like last time I was doing that, it's all like really big washy symbols. Yeah, it's really like, like your ride symbol just needs to have no articulation, just all <laughs> yeah. you know, just like time. an Alex Van Halen style, yeah, you know, <laughs> totally just like washy, washing everything out. Yes, super fun. Yeah, so you went from playing in those kind of situations that you eventually go to college for music, and why did you do that? I did, yeah, great question. Um, so I was also at the time when I was like in high school, um, I was playing in. I was, I was unusual. I didn't know that stuff like, uh, the Cleveland orchestra youth orchestra like existed. Like I just didn't have anyone point me toward that way, but I had been taking like percussion lessons, um, you know, starting in middle school. So I had like a, a teacher who was like, um, I came to him and I think I wanted to learn like hand drums or something when I was like, this is like 14, 15. And he was like, well, you know how to play marimba, don't you? And I'm like, what, what's that? And, you know, I had no idea. Um, He's like, you know, you're like your scales and your music theory and all that. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like at all, any of this stuff, you know? So he was like, well, I want to teach you that first before he was a grad student at Kent state at the time. Uh, his name was N Scott Robinson. He now teaches percussion. I, I want to say, I think he's back at Towson. No, he's in San Diego. Now he's at a school in San Diego. He's, a, he's like a pupil of Gwen, Glenn Velez. He's a very like crazy, you know, frame drumming, hand drumming guy. Um, super awesome musician. Um, so he got me on kind of the percussion set. So I stopped kind of taking drum set lessons really and started taking these like classical percussion lessons. And then, but I also still play drum set like in churches and stuff. So when the time came for college decisions, the question was, well, do I want to go to like a Berkeley kind of situation or do I want to go to a, um, like a classical school? And I think my more, um, conservative side won out. And I was like, well, I want to get a job in an orchestra because that's like, you get to be in like one city and you get to like, you know, you can kind of like build up maybe like more of a life or something, you know, without like having to be like on the road all the time. And like, it's, it seems like it's so disruptive. Um, so that was the decision I made was to go to, I actually started at, at Ohio State University. Um, I was there for about a year and a half. And then I left and finished my degree at Cleveland State, which is a much better fit for me. Ohio State at the time to me felt like it was a lot of, um, I would, I call it a uh, percussion for percussion's sake. Like all you're doing is learning like marimba solos and percussion ensemble. And, you know, it's all this like very percussion, percussion, percussion stuff. Um, and le- it didn't feel as focused on like the playing music with other people, other instruments thing, other instruments or singers. So Cleveland state was my very like orchestrally focused. That's where Tom Freer was teaching at the time. Um, it was very like heavy, like kind of audition heavy program, like learn your excerpts, take auditions, win jobs. Like that was kind of the thing. So I did my undergrad there. Um, and that was, that was why I was, I, I thought that I was going to go like be an orchestra guy. And then after that, I went to rice, uh, which is a, which was like an inverse in a way. Cause it was like really good collegiate orchestra, like super awesome collegiate orchestra. 
Um, so that was a chance for me to kind of like actually get to play in a really good ensemble, like all the time and continue like learning and taking auditions and stuff. So I was down there, but everywhere I went, I was always kind of known as the drum set guy because I could, I could look at a chart and I could play grooves and I could interpret what's on a chart. It didn't have to be written down for me. And my orchestral training kind of gave me that ability to understand how to like read conductors you know, which on Broadway is, is a, you know, it's a specific thing. The way you have to do it in a symphony is very different, obviously, but like you kind of learn how to like what you need to pay attention to, what you should, the things you should ignore a little bit, depending on the situation and whatever, you know? Um, so it kind of, all of that just sort of gave me this like really, I wasn't trying to find it, but I feel like I kind of like locked into like a skill set that works really well in theater. And it was, it was very not deliberate for a long time. It was just sort of coincidental, you know? So studying classical percussion, mm -hmm. I've talked to a couple of people that, that actually did that. And again, it's a whole other thing that I'm learning more about as far as auditioning mm -hmm. for symphony orchestras and the preparation that you have to do to audition. Were mm -hmm. you doing that as well? I was, yeah. When I was at Rice, I, um, I really wanted to be a timpanist. So I actually uh, took out a loan and like bought a set of timpani from one of the guys in the Houston Symphony when he was sort of cross-grading. Um, his timpani. So he was, he, he had really good pro drums and he was just going to a different kind of really good pro drum. So I bought his old drums from him. Um, and basically just like rented those effectively. Like when you think about the finances of it, it was basically like I rented them for like three years. And then I sold them to, um, UT university of Texas at Austin needed a set of timpani. So when I left town, I sold my timpani to them. Um, but yeah, I thought I was going to be a timpani player and you're right about the, the audition preparation. That was a thing where, I got out of school and so I, I didn't really have access to practice as much there anymore as I wanted to, but I did find a good situation. One of the churches where I knew the music director had a little bit of extra space. So he let me keep some timpani there and I could actually practice on my drums, um, you know, pretty like a routine, fairly routinely, which was cool. Um, but I was in the position where I had to like, I had to take every private lesson. I had to teach every private lesson that I possibly could. Um, take every gig that I possibly could to pay for the drums and pay rent and, you know, pay everything else. Um, so I wound up with like not enough time to really do the audition thing. And then you realize a lot of the people that you're, um, you're up against in these auditions, you know, they're students and they're, they're practicing this stuff like eight hours a day, you know, they're just going through and they're, they're every audition they're getting ready for. And they're, they're playing it like just tons like tons and tons and tons. They all their their only job is to practice for like this audition and stuff. And so it was, it for me it became like I, I was realizing like this isn't going to work out for me long term. You know, if my financial situation had been different, like maybe it would have, or if I'd been able to like stay in school longer or something. You know, maybe I could have gone back and done done more of it. But it just became one of those things where I'm like, I don't think this is going to work out for me like super long term. And I still to this day I still get pretty nervous during auditions. Like audition situations are still pretty nerve wracking. Um, I always dealt with that, uh, just as far as like the, the playing coming out the right way. And it's just, it's so many new things. And especially, you know, for timpani and percussion auditions, you're, you're often, you know, you're playing on like, uh, it's the, the first time you're seeing that xylophone is like at the audition or whatever. You know what I mean? Now you might be able, you might be lucky, like Cleveland state, you know, had like a stable of instruments that were the staples you would find in most orchestras. So if you knew the orchestra had the Deegan 872, you could practice on the, the school's Deegan 872, but it's still different. It's not exactly the same, you know? Um, but that was a really hard thing for me to get used to and stuff. Being in New York cured me of that a lot because 
<laughs> like, you know, you're always, you're never bringing your own gear to stuff half the time. It's always like the club drums and the whatever. Mm-hmm. You're, you're lucky to be bringing your cymbals, maybe a snare drum, you know, the, working in New York cured me of the need to like have my stuff all the time. It's like, no, are the drums there? Great. I'm using those. <laughs> no question. You know, you know, it's so funny. I'm, I'm going off on a little tangent here, but uh, recently I started teaching a, a couple of young people and they were talking, I was asking them about, you know, how do you get your drums to, to these venues in New York City? He's like, I'm, I don't bring my drums around. I was like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> because, you know, when I came here in 93, I, I dragged my drums to every gig, you know, CB's yeah. Gallery or CBGB's or wherever. You had to bring it, even the bitter oh, end. Wow. Oh, wow, really? Man. Yeah, you had to bring it. Everyone brought their drum set. You put it, you know, you walk in and it's on oh, the right-hand yeah. side. Okay. There was drums ready to go on and drums ready to come off. And mm-hmm. it was just a, man, it was a, is a cluster, but anyway, crazy. Nowadays, all these places have they have backline. I'm like, man, yeah. see, I paved the way <laughs> oh, for you. <laughs> no, yeah, <I'm> man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's so much easier now. You could just go in and play and, and leave, and almost mm-hmm. like Broadway. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> yeah, you decided to get your master's degree from Rice, and mm-hmm. you you your your focus after graduation was on the symphonic. Uh, path you want to be in a uh, symphony orchestra yeah i was trying to win a job as a timpanist so i took a few auditions um that was the other thing too it was so expensive too because like every time you know you want to take an audition you got to fly to like whatever city the orchestra is in assuming it's you know not drivable um probably pay for a hotel lose a couple days of work you know by the time you like total it all up it's like man you're like you're losing like you know some serious money you know on the whole thing it's all, and it's always a um a debit to the things so you really had to get far ahead when you could get ahead in order to afford to take the auditions um so what happened for me was uh as far as like kind of how it it got me into theater was my my teacher at rice was one of the big contractors in town he didn't contract much theater he contracted a lot of he contracted the opera he contracted the sort of freelance classical world. He had like a big band, kind of a function, you know, band, wedding band type thing that he did, um, which he was a member. It was his band. Um, but he recommended me for uh, a couple theater gigs. And that was kind of how I figured out that I was actually good at it. I had only done one theater gig really when I was in Ohio. And I was a sub on the show Love Janice at the Hannah Theater, which was like not the same Janice Joplin show that came into Broadway a couple years ago with Mary Bridget Davies. She did actually do this show. She was like the, the second Janice actually at that production. So I've actually met her there. She's from Cleveland. Um, so I met her there and, uh, Oh, this is a crazy connection. The woman who played Janice at the show was Katrina Chester, Gary Chester's daughter. <laughs> yeah. Like she's actually like, she, she's in named in the back of, uh, you know, the, the new breed, but she talks, she has a little bit, a little bit about like Gary's legacy and stuff. So it was really cool to meet her too you know, mm. um, that was amazing, you know, um, but she was, she was super sweet. So that was my first ever subbing gig was like, was, was, was that my first ever theater gig? I think ever apart from like playing the show at my high school or something, you know? Um, and so then in Houston, I just sort of like, I got a couple theater gigs through the grapevine and then I started just getting more and more of them. And all of a sudden it was like, my calendar was full of theater gigs all the time. Because again, I think I, had inadvertently or kind of unknowingly stumbled into like the right skill set for this thing. And also as, as you, we were talking about the musical theater, you know, drum and percussion book on a group on Facebook, you know, there was a lot of that thing where it's like, cool, we're only hiring one of you, but there's two books. Can you combine these things? And like, I can actually play the mallet instruments and I can play timpani. And, you know, so I could, I could 
combine those things as much as, you know, as possible to at times, but I could, I could make those other instruments work, um, you know, alongside the drum set and stuff. Um, so yeah, I wound up getting a lot of theater work that way, you know, um, that was kind of what started me on that. And then the way I got here was there, like I said, my teacher in Houston was a contractor, uh, but he didn't do a lot of theater. He had one theater where he contracted for, it's called the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas. It's an exact physical copy of the Schubert Theater here in New York City, but in Houston. Um, that's why it's called the Alley, like the Schubert Alley. Ah, um, okay. Yeah. So it's like a literal, I guess the, I'm, I'm told the backstage and everything, like the facility of it is kind of, it's like identical to the Schubert. So you can do stuff there as like an out of town and then bring it here and it works is, is I guess is kind of the idea. Um, so there was a musical that was coming through there called Wonderland by Frank Wildhorn that was um, doing an out of town uh, tryout in Houston. This was like January, 2010 or something. And he called me up and said, Hey, I have this gig coming in. I think you might be a good fit for it. Do you want to, the music supervisor wants to talk to whoever the drummer is going to be. Do you want to talk to him? So sure. Of course, obviously you say yes. You know, so I, I said yes and talked to the music supervisor and he kind of walked me through like what the book is and kind of what it was about. I was like, yeah, this sounds great. And the idea was, it was a bunch of, a whole bunch of different styles and kind of a big hybrid book of like, there's drums and some percussion and whatever. Like this is right up my alley. So I did the show there and, um, you know, long story short, they asked me to come play it on Broadway when it came in um, the next year. It came in spring 2011. So that was how I got here was I actually moved here with a Broadway show, which is crazy. Ah. Mm -hmm. And how long did that last? <laughs> All of four weeks, 28 what? performances. Yeah, a little bit of a flop, as they say. Oh, uh, we, no. had, we had like four weeks of previews and four weeks of shows. And that was it. Um so yeah, it was, it was a bummer. That was a bummer for everybody, obviously. You so know? did you, did you kind of feel that that was going to happen or, or I had no idea. I didn't know what the signs were of stuff like that. You know what I mean? When they came to me and we're like, when they came to us and we're like, Hey, we have some tickets to give away, like give them to your friends. It was like, Oh, that's great. I can give tickets to my friends. So you just, you just went, Oh no, that's the, that's the appropriate reaction. <laughs> You've been around probably for like, Oh no, you're giving away tickets. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's the reaction. Um, I was like, Oh, this is great. I can give them to my, you know. My, my, uh, that friend who I went to high school with, who later became my wife, you know, is how that like went. she was here in the city and we went, we went to high school together. I gave her tickets for the show. We reconnected there and then oh, started nice. dating about a year later. It's a good thing they came out of it. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Huge yeah, good thing. For words sure. of wisdom. When your tickets, when your show starts giving away tickets, it's not a good sign. Yeah. Not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. So, but that was my thing that got me here. And it was from that show that Bill Lanham played percussion on that show you know, our, our dear mutual friend, I love Bill. And Bill was the first guy to let me sub for him on Broadway, um, on Evita. So that was like my, my connection from that show and Bill, that's, that's all like, everything's just gone out, you know, very organically from that, you know. It's fascinating how certain people have one person that, that connects them into the whole scene. And then it expands, mm -hmm. like you said, for me, yeah. it was, it was Matt Beck, a guitar player. Sure. Who got me into the whole scene, but nice. Yeah. Uh, so you were at Evita. I, I subbed there as well. And I know. A, yeah, we both did. Yeah. It was the first time having playing that type of show because mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily in my wheelhouse. And, you know, I admired Bill from seeing him at Les Mis and knowing mm -hmm. he's, he's done all kinds of stuff like that. And he asked me to do it. I'm like, oh, my God, it's a little scary, especially doing a song like And the Money Kept Rolling In. I'm like, oh, yeah. shit. But uh -huh. uh, that didn't last very long either, though. 
I mean, I can't remember how long it lasted, but when I guess when I started learning it, as mm. soon as I got it, it was like they had six weeks left, and I was like, "Oh, oh bummer, yeah. that's too bad." But you uh, sub there, and you you mm-hmm. uh, I guess Jeff Potter got your name too. You subbed at Rent as well. I subbed at um, actually subbed at the Off Broadway Rent for Carter. Oh, so that was actually my okay. first. That was actually before Evita. I started subbing there a little before then. Um, that was super cool. I had, you know, I was, that was my first ever New York city subbing thing was subbing on that book for Carter. Yeah. I forgot um, rent closed in 2008. And so this is 2012, yeah. I guess. Yes. Yeah, so I think you're right. I think 2012, 2011 might've been like late 11, whatever it was when that, like when that reopened. Um, but yeah, like Carter was kind enough to have me in there and, um, you got to got to meet him and got to know a couple of the other folks in that band and stuff. And it was great. So um, how did you, how did he's you, such a killer. How'd you connect with uh, Carter McLean? That was literally like just a cold call. I think I just, I'd heard, I think wonder if, if memory serves like wonderland had closed and I had heard that there was, Oh, but like there's this rent show opening. They're going to reopen rent. And I was like, I knew that cause I played the show in Houston. I knew the score already. So I was trying to figure out if there was any way I could get, you know, considered for it. And obviously like I was, I was just too new. I wasn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't considered for it. Um, but I think I just, I found out that Carter was doing it and I just wrote to him and said, Hey, like I've done, done the show before. I already kind of know the score and I'm, I, you know, I moved here with a show and it closed. So I'm like super free. I'm like, could practice it 20 hours a day if you want, whatever, you know, whatever I got to do to get in. Um, and eventually he was kind enough to just let me, uh, come in and play the show for him. Um, you know, which is cool. It was really, really informative because I got to learn. That's a long score. I don't know if you played that show. Mm-hmm. It's a long show. There's a lot of music in that show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to dial in my whole, like, I got to talk to people about how you sub and what do you do and, you know, transcribe the entire book of him playing the show. And that was not one of those ones where like, it was, you know, there's a lot of slashes in that one. So you're writing and all kinds of stuff. And he's, he's a very capable player as we all know. So there was a lot of I learned a lot of really cool vocabulary from that and like stuff I still use all the time in my, my everyday, you know, bag of tricks that I can try to pull out, you know, try to pull off nowhere near as well as he does, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) I do what I can. After Wonderland closed in four weeks, were you like, you know what, I got to go back or were you like, you know, I'm here now, I'm going to make things happen. That's a great question. Um, So I had, what was crazy was, I'm trying to remember when we closed. It was like May 15 or something, or they announced the closing on May 15. Um, I had literally just given away my, um, my like good private teaching gig in Houston that I had had prior to leaving the city. You know, I'd gotten into this, like this really wealthy private school, um, in the woodlands, Texas, it was a very, very, like very, uh, wealthy community. Um, and it was a great situation. They had some good gear. I could borrow like any gear I wanted, like any time they were basically kind of letting me, it was a big school. It was like, I think it might be literally like K through 12. It was a huge school. It was at least like third grade or something through uh, high school. So they were kind of letting me like design my own program, which was amazing. I was getting to like start like the fifth grade students the way I wanted to and like design the curriculum kind of like with them. And I had just started that fall. Um, so when I moved, that was like fall 20, uh, 2010, I guess. And so then when I moved to the city in spring 2011, you know, they came to the, the, the band director was a friend of mine. And there came to the point where they kind of had to hire someone. He kind of needed to know, like, are you going to come back next year? or not. Cause I had said like, yeah, I don't know who long, who knows how long this thing's going to go. Like, I have no idea. Um, 
you know, and I was, I was as about as well established as you could, as one, you know, could be in Houston being my age and being just what the scene is down there. So I kind of knew what I was going to be doing. So yeah, I chose to stay because I also kind of had this feeling like if I go back to Houston, I'm going to be doing the same thing in like 10 years. Like it's a smaller scene, you know, than a place like New York, of course, which is, you know, to be expected. Um, and it's, it's, and it's, it's kind of got the people who are in the top like echelons of it. And, you know, there's, it was going to be a long time before any of that was going to turn over, you know, at that time. So I knew I'm like, I'm going to be doing the same stuff in 10 years. I'll be doing the same sort of like regional, you know, gig, local gig kind of thing. That's what I'm going to be doing. And it had been hard to do. So I was like, yeah, let's take the shot. You know, at the time, I think I was like 28, 27, 28. Um, you know, wasn't married, didn't have kids. I was generally unencumbered as they would say, you know? Um, so yeah, I kind of took the shot and was just sort of like, I think I'm just going to stay and see, see what I can do. Um, I think some people like thought that was a little crazy, you know, and it's certainly like what was never easy. Um, I mean, I remember like Wonderland closed, like I said, on something like May 15th or 27th or something like that. I didn't play a single gig until like September or something like August, not a single thing like came in. Um, it was also a weird time. Like it was a very, it was kind of an odd time. It was still like the city was still kind of recovering from the the recession, the great recession, you know, it was still sort of in the middle of that. I remember that was the year book of Mormon opened. So Sean was kind enough to let me come watch him play the show a few times. And I met like Matt Vandrand and like the guys who were on like the long running shows. But I remember going to, um, uh, IBDB, dot com, you know, where you can look up the personnel on shows and stuff. There was like 17 shows total or something running at that time. It was not very many. Uh, it was like the big ones. It was like Lion King and Phantom and Chicago and, you know, these shows that have been around for kind of like, you know, forever. Um, yeah. And now there's like, I mean, that was like a third of the theaters were occupied or something. It was crazy. It was a really like slow time overall for Broadway. So it was real hard to find subbing. Like everybody was, anybody who had a show was really hanging on to it, you know? At that time, I was very fortunate to be working at Memphis the Musical. Oh, at, nice! Yeah, at at the Schubert Theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool! <laughs> in in yeah. Schubert Alley, and I, people were like, "Man, it's rough out here." And I was like, "Oh my god, mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, go back out there again." Because man, this money is great; it's a steady yeah. gig. But 2012 mm-hmm. came along, and we, you know, the show closed, and I was unemployed again. But man, I was I man. was fortunate to, you know, have that show from. Uh, when did we open? Nineteen uh, two thousand nine to two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. That's great. So it was a, I guess, somewhat of a long run. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a weird time. And I remember mm-hmm. every January or so, you get the list of shows yep. that would close, and it'd be like, oh my god, there's so many people out of yeah. work. But things mm-hmm. rebounded. Yeah. But you know, there's this up and up and downs of of theater. But mm-hmm. it's the thing you kind of have to expect. So I was, you know, I bring that up because. I guess the orchestral uh, route, if you get into an orchestra, are you, uh, do you have like tenure? Is it something that you, if you get a job at a mm-hmm. symphony orchestra, do you have that job for life? Like, how does that work? As opposed to Broadway, yes, it's your right. gig, but, you know, mm-hmm. shows don't last very long, generally. Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, I'm I'm not very much in the orchestral world anymore. I, I didn't really pursue it when I got here. But yeah, generally speaking, uh, the big orchestras are like, they're called like full-time orchestras or like, you know, full season orchestras. They might be like, they you're salaried and it's a, it's a full 50, 52 weeks a year, you know, kind of thing typically. Um, and yeah, you do get tenure after a certain period. That every, I think it's usually like a couple of years or something or end of your first season or something. They'll do a 
little review thing typically. And you either sort of like get your job or not. And then that's it. You're in there. And it's similar to, you know, it's, 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 it's like every orchestra is like a Broadway show, except you're, you're correct. It goes on like forever, like season to season. Um, and of course, like I said earlier, I went toward the orchestra route because I thought that was going to be like more secure. And then as I got out of college and started seeing what was going on, it's like, oh my gosh, orchestras are failing left and right. Like, you know, like not, not like the way Broadway shows do, but so many orchestras like in the recession were closing, um, you know, they were like disbanding and they, they couldn't deal or they were going from being full-time 50 week seasons to being, oh, we're going to do a 26 week season and we're not going to give you health insurance anymore. And we're going to, you know, we just, we fiscally, we can't do it anymore. So we're going to, we got to squeeze it all back down, you know, um, so just it was clear that like, yeah, like music is a hard road to go, I think no matter which way, which direction you decide to go in it. It's definitely a thing that's, you know, it's, it's tough to make a real career out of it. Um, you know, but yeah, so it's, it's definitely, it is, it is a different thing in that sense though. If you, if you win an orchestra job, like if you're in the New York Phil or you're in, you know, even like, you know, smaller groups, um, even like a lot of like, like, I don't know what the right term would be, but like this, the smaller towns have like full on, you know, 50 week full-time orchestras, you know, cities that would be like kind of mid-major or whatever, whatever that sports term is, you know, not like, not New York, LA, you know, but the, those kind of mid-sized cities, even most of those cities have a full-time orchestra, you know, that you can, it's a full-time gig and it's got benefits and that AFM pension and all that stuff, you know. You, you know, left that kind of, uh, you got off of that path and you wound up getting your uh, Wonderland gig and then, and then mm-hmm. that closed and you started subbing for Carter mm-hmm. and you went to Evita. Yeah. Got to Matilda mm-hmm. Avenue Q cats. Yep. What did you do to uh, network and meet other musicians that are doing Broadway shows? If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. What did you do to uh, network and meet other musicians that are doing Broadway shows? 
It's a great question. I, I still, I actually really, I open your, um, that, that email you send out every time about the networking tips. I open it and reread it every single time. I know it's gone out a few times over the past few months and I, I read it every time because I don't feel like I'm that good at networking, to be honest. Um, I've been very fortunate, you know, to, to get to work as much as I have. Um, you know, I, I do do the thing. I, I always try to connect with drummers. I, I'll try to be specific with, with, a, with it for drummers. Like, I love hearing everybody play their shows. It's, 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 it's super fascinating and so informative. And it's so interesting if you're, when you're in New York and you, you're uh, lucky enough, you know, when it was pre COVID to be able to just go sit in a pit with someone. And we're so lucky as drummers, cause as drummers and percussionists, we often are kind of given a lot of our own space in the pit and it's kind of our own little world. And if we want to have someone sit with us, that's no problem. There isn't the second drummer next to us. Who's, you know, annoyed. There's another person there or something, or there's no, there's not enough room. So it was just so fascinating to see, just how like fantastic everybody is and how different everybody is and how unique everybody's playing is how they approach certain things that the way that every, every orchestra is, is such its own little, like, um, little mini like organism, you know, and they all function like their own way. It might be a like fully headphones, in-ears, click tracks situation. It might be none of that. It might be like one little hotspot monitor so you can hear that person who's like 30 feet away from you. And other than that, it's like fully acoustic and it's very orchestral in that sense um, and everything in between, you know? And it's just, it's it was so cool to get to do that. So I would always try to email people um, and just say, hey, I'd love to come watch you play your show. Um, I would never you know, say, Hey, I want to sub for you. Like right off the bat. That was never like the thing I would always try to like, just, I just want to hear you and meet you and see your thing. I'm kind of new in town, you know, whatever. Um, and I would do that. And I always just found that like super rewarding. Um, and then, you know, you talk to people and you do what we're doing now. You talk about your influences, you talk about your background. Um, you know, these are typical conversations. I think that like drummers and musicians have with each other and, you know, so you kind of have those answers ready. And then if it turns out it's a good fit, maybe it's a good fit and you get to work with someone, you get to work with someone. And I also had the advantage of, um, advantage slash disadvantage, kind of a double-edged thing. You know, when I was here after Wonderland closed, I had nothing else going on. Like I said, I didn't work for like, it was three or four months. I didn't do a single gig. I was just like on unemployment or something. Um, so when the calls, when I did get that shot, I had so much time to practice the stuff. Um, you know, you're talking about subbing Evita, like Evita was my first, Broadway subbing thing. I bet I practice, I practice that at least three hours a day all the, all the time. And, and Bill was very kind and gave me a lot of time to like do it. I was, I probably spent at least six weeks doing that or something. You know, I was so ready for that first show. It was the whole, <laughs> the whole score was practically memorized at that point. You know what I mean? I was just staring the conductor down just, like, <laughs> I'm right with you. Here we go. You know, I was just like right there, man. Um, you know, so I was lucky to have that kind of time available to do that. Like the longer you're here, the busier you get, the less you have that luxury, you know? So I was, I think it was fortunate for me that I, I had that time and I could make those first few impressions well, that were good, you know? So I think that really helped that helped. Like, I think, I think word travels fast in this town a lot. You know what I mean? Like good and bad at times. So, I mean, if you, if you do your first couple things, well, I think it starts to snowball, you know? So it's, it's important to, when you get that opportunity, I think if you, if you can to really take the time and do it as really as well as you can, which obviously we all do it as well as we can. But, you know, I was, I was very fortunate that I had that, um, that time to do that. Avenue Q cats. Hello, mm -hmm. Dolly, Anastasia, the prom, mm -hmm. then bandstand. Tell me yeah. about how you got bandstand. 
Yeah, Bandstand was so fun. And um, that, that I, was that was your show. That was my show. That was my last Broadway show. That was the 2017 season. Um, so Bandstand, this again, this actually goes all the way back to Wonderland. The music director for Wonderland when it was in Houston was uh, this guy named Greg Anthony, um, who's now uh, he goes by Greg Anthony Rassen, I think, professionally now. Um, so Greg, I met Greg in Houston doing that show and we just sort of became friends. My first real gig after Wonderland closed was he came, uh, he was living in, in Boston, I think at the time. And he came down to do an off, like a way off Broadway in New Jersey, um, show that was kind of eyeing its way into Broadway. Um, and asked me if I wanted to do that run. And I was like, sure, like, absolutely. Um, so that was like, you know, a lot of travel and hard run, you know, far away when I was living in Queens at the time and I had to travel to New Jersey every day, you know, to play, play a, play a show for a hundred bucks or whatever it was, you know, some crazy, some crazy amount of money. Um, that was, that was difficult, but obviously a great opportunity. So he and I reconnected there and then we're just always sort of around. I don't think he was living in New York full time, but then eventually he did come back and, um, just, yeah, he just called me up one day and it was, it was kind of a last second thing. Bandstand was doing a, um, a run at paper mill out in New Jersey, uh, which is a great regional theater, uh, house in a, what Milburn, New Jersey, um, outside the city. And they've become kind of a, a testing ground for a lot of stuff that's kind of Broadway bound. Um, I remember like they, they won the, the special Tony in like 2018 or something for being best regional house. And like the next season it was of their six shows, five of them were new musicals. <laughs> You know, it was like they were, they were, they were really playing that up. Um, so they were doing a fall run of bandstand at paper mill and he called me, it was like late July or maybe even into August. And it was kind of a last second thing. Like rehearsals were starting really soon. And I think the, uh, the drummer they had been talking to about doing it, um, just couldn't, they couldn't make it work for whatever reason, you know, something just didn't work. And, so they, um, they brought me in and I had to learn the score like in a, in a couple days and come in and kind of like play through it and see if it was going to work. And it was the kind of thing where there, there wasn't a drum book yet. It was just a, here's a piano vocal score. Um, you know, so it's like, just sort of learn these tunes, go with this, try that, you know? Um, and so that was, that was how I got that was, I think Greg just knew me and, you know, was <laughs> correct that I was probably available and, you know, so, uh, gr super grateful that he continues to call me. <laughs> You know, continues to uh, send stuff my way. So that was, that was how I got that one, which is through Greg. So that goes all the way back to like my first, like pre New York, you know, connection with sort of the New York theater world. Cause I should explain, sorry, when they did Wonderland in Houston, they sent the music director and the associate um, and like a lot of the design team, like the sound designer and the lighting designer and choreographer were all New York people, but the orchestra, the rest of the orchestra was local was local to Houston. So, but I got to meet some New York people and that sort of established some of those connections and stuff. And then because we, he didn't actually do the show on Broadway, he was doing other stuff, but he, um, because of that, we knew some of the same people. And so again, it was just all those connections. And when people ask about you, they can ask someone they already know and they can get an opinion and your, the way your reputation kind of gets around there and stuff like that. So that was kind of how all that went. So bandstand was at paper mill playhouse. It was, yeah, that was, uh, oh gosh, it was either 15, 15 or 16, I think. Um, it was a minute cause it was fall. I think it was fall 15. So like later into 15, we closed probably in like November, December, 2015. Well, it went to, one. it went to Broadway in 2017. Yeah. It went to Broadway in 2017. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, did it run very long? 
about six months. It wasn't super long. We opened in April and ran into September, I think. And because of like, you know how it is when you're, when you're the drummer, you're like, you're in rehearsal. So I started working in like February or something. Mm-hmm. So I, I, the, the, I got a nice, like, you know, totally decent run out of it. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't, we, I'm trying to what we did. We got, we won the Tony for choreography. It was Andy Blankenbuehler who choreographed Hamilton. He was our director choreographer. So won the Tony for choreography and we were nominated for orchestration, which was super cool. Um, it didn't, didn't win that one. I heard a few tracks from it, man. You're mm-hmm. fucking swinging on that, man. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're very like, kind. Thank Damn, you. this guy can fucking play. Because I, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I knew you from the scene, and you know, we kind of crossed paths, even, you know, mm-hmm. literally crossing paths in Midtown. Like, hey, man, all the time, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally, all the time. I love that 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 one time I was walking down Eighth <laughs> Avenue, and you you were like walking behind me, sort of next to me, like, oh, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir. You were kind of like trying to get my attention, kind of oh, messing yeah. with me. I was like. <laughs> Oh, that was, you know, that was so funny. That Sometimes I do that to people like, hey, man, can yeah. I borrow some money, please? Yeah. Like, get the fuck out of here, dude. And it's like, oh, but it's na- oh now, it's now I'll be like, please, can I borrow some money? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Just oh, gotcha. kidding. You know, I saw somebody, again, I saw some uh, one of the people from Ain't Too Proud, and he was yeah, on yeah. his way to a workshop and. At the time, right now, I'm I'm doing a workshop, and cool. he was he was going someplace, and I was going another place, and we connected. He's like, "Oh, so what are you doing now?" I said, "You know, well," and I, I kind of like joking with people about this. I say, "Yeah, you know, I'm about to go get into my Elmo uh, costume and go to 42nd Street and you know, do my break dancing routine." He's like, "Man, uh-huh. if, I, if I ever see you do that, I'm putting it on Instagram." Uh-huh. <laughs> nice, but yeah. So anyway, uh, bandstand. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get a chance to play on the Tony Awards with that? Was it a uh, was it nominated for best musical? We did, yeah. We got to do um, our Act Two opener, which was really fun, really cool number called a Nobody, like kind of a shuffly, um, almost Brian Setzer orchestra like type thing. That was my a rockabilly, kind of a ro- almost like a rockabilly thing. Um, the show was set was supposed to be set in like you know the 19, kind of post World War II nineteen forties swing vibe, but it's still uh fantasical you know things we were we were not limited to only that particular style um but yeah we did we got to go into the uh the recording studio and record that like for the tonys i got to play on it which was really cool um warren that was one of the years warren was doing the tonys so i got to like go in and see warren and um you know real quick swap out some symbols and like put my snare drum up and like you know do this thing and you know in and out in like 15 minutes like super fast or <laughs> maybe like an hour or something we had a because we also had to record like the little bumper music you know they use um when they're announcing you yes. or whatever if you, if you win or win or whatever um so yeah it was super cool really cool experience to get to do that too you know it was really fun I forgot about that i did that with ain't too proud yeah. last time yeah man yeah you just go in and you just play and you leave it's a yeah. fascinating yeah right fascinating experience that whole big orchestra in front of you and you yes know, yeah exactly because like, yeah, so i remember we we had a pretty big orchestra at bandstand we were 13 in the pit which was bigger than the minimum for our theater i think our minimum was like nine or something mm. so they actually went like a good bit over and the the whole like the plot of bandstand revolves around a guy who comes back from the war and like starts a swing band and and, and is writing music and being creative to kind of deal with his you know what we now know of course is like ptsd um, and so there's a band of actors on stage. It was actually like a drummer and a bass player and the, and the lead guy was playing piano and there's a couple of horn players like on stage as well. So there was a total of 19 strong at, at, at certain points in the show, you know, which is really fun. 
maybe that's why you guys closed because it, it was too expensive. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, too, many, whole, too many that's, musicians. That's, a, I guess, a whole other podcast as far yeah, as. That is uh, a whole other one for sure. <laughs> Definitely. The business of Broadway. I'm sure there's somebody that does that already. But anyway, um, <laughs> you went on after that to do Jerry Springer, the opera? Mm-hmm. Yep. Tell me about that. How'd you uh, get connected with that one? That one was Greg again. That's Greg, Greg Anthony. Greg did the charts for that. And um, he <laughs> wrote me like just the most ridiculous book. It was so crazy, man. I will send you some pictures so you can put them up with the podcast or whatever. It was like drum set, three timpani, you know, Grand Casa orchestral bass drum, vibraphone, bells, chimes. Uh, I think I had Critales too. I think there was an octave of Critales. Um some hand drums, electronic pad it was like everything in the kitchen sink. Like just so many, so much stuff. It was such a crazy fun book, really hard <laughs> that we had like a six or eight week run. And I just, I couldn't sub it out. It was just, it was an off Broadway show and it was just, it was so hard. Like definitely the hardest thing I've ever played for sure. By, wow. by a long shot, um, rewarding, but just really difficult. Um, and everybody's book was like that. We only had four musicians and it was like two keyboard books who were crazy busy and one reed player who had like seven horns. He had an Iwi, that electronic instrument thing. So we could do like guitar solos and like guitar bends and stuff like that. All this extra kind of MIDI stuff. It was crazy. Um, that was really fun. That was, a also kind of ran a, a, a bunch of different like sort of styles, but it was, it was an opera like proper. So a ton of music too. Um, it's like a two act opera, you know, it was, it was serious. When you were at uh, Bandstand, did you have time? Was it, did you run long enough to actually get subs to come in for you? I did. Yeah. I had two, um, two guys come in and sub for me. Uh, I had Joe Horchevsky and Dan Berkery. I'm sure you both know. I know we, we both know Joe from Avenue Q. Um, and they, they both like did great. I, I wish I'd ha- we had more time with the run and I could have gotten more people in. Um, I mean, you know how it is when it comes to the subbing thing. It's always a, you know, you, you want to get as I'd love to give everybody a chance to sub on a show that I do. I'd love to be blessed with a show that runs long enough that I can have everybody I know sub on it, you know, it would be awesome. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's tough. And I, but uh, you know, the decision-making process is always kind of a mutual thing with you, the player and the music director, and you just, the contract and you want everybody to be comfortable with like who you're bringing in and stuff. So, um, yeah, I wish we'd had a little more time, but I was, I was able to get, um, two, two of my, my buddies in, um, there, uh, they both did great, of course, you know, yeah. So it was, that was the first time I think I'd ever, um, yeah. Wonderland did not long run long enough to get a sub in. <laughs> um, and you weren't yeah. able to take off at Jerry Springer, but you yeah. went out to do a show called Clueless, the musical. Mm-hmm. Yep. Was that, uh, that was an off Broadway show, correct? That was also off Broadway. Yeah. That was at, um, signature theater. It was one of the, one of those houses. Okay. That was, that's the name of it. We were talking, we were trying to remember earlier. Uh, it was one of the signature theater houses. Um, yeah. And that one was, a, again, about the same, like kind of six, eight week run. I did have a sub on that one too. Yeah. I had someone sub. I, we, I had a, we had a family wedding. It was taking place kind of over the, the Christmas holidays that we, or new year holiday really. Um, so I had to, I had to get away for, I had a whole weekend. I had to get away. So I made sure to, I had one sub. And so he got that, that whole weekend I was gone. And then he got a whole bunch of other shows just to help make it make sense. <laughs> you know, try, try to. I try, I try to be considerate of those things when I have subs in on stuff, you know. Out of all the shows that, that you've done so far, which one is the, which one is your favorite musical to play? That's a tough one. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's like such a hard one to say. Um, 
I, th- I suppose that all the ones I've played, man, I don't even know. They're all just so different, you know? I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, Bandstand was really fun and rewarding to play for sure. Um, like that was a good one. I'd probably have to say Bandstand at this point. I think I'd have to, I had to pick that one. It was, I got to, I, I was a little more, um, you know, I was a little more experienced at that point. I got to kind of make the book, you know, my own as much as I could. And it was just a really fun, it was, a, you know, it was a great hang. It was a good, everybody was really cool. The charts were great. Um, but I had to, I had to pick out of the current list right now. I think I'd have to pick Bandstand. Yeah. And you've done several different shows and you've subbed and you've been the chair holder. Mm-hmm. Advice for someone that's listening to this podcast or watching this. What's the most important thing a drummer should know about being a success on Broadway? About being a success on Broadway. Um, as a sub, it's definitely preparation is like, is just super, super key. Um, like I was saying before, like when I, my first couple subbing experiences here, I had the gift of the time to really, I had tons of time to prep for the show and I got to do it really well. Um, really take my time, lots of get in lots of repetitions, you know, um, feel super comfortable coming in. Like you get to that point where you're almost like, you should be like tired of playing the show before you play your first show. You know what I mean? And then I've also had the experience where it's like, Hey, uh, I need you to learn this show in like a couple weeks or whatever. And it's like, and it's a ton of notes and it's crazy fast and you really got to like kind of cram. Um, and you might be busy, you know, the more you work, the busier you're going to be. And it's going to be harder to find that time to do, you know, these extended hours of preparation that you have to do. Um, so I've, I've been on both sides of that. And like, you, you always got to do your best, of course, but like the preparation is definitely key. Um, for me subbing, I have like a whole like system I do with like, I have like a spreadsheet that I sort of color code with like, you know, red, orange, yellow, green numbers, like red, red ones being like really high priority, you know, and I actually like, I work on those first, even if it's not the, like the order of the show, I work on like the really hard stuff first so that I get the most time and the most repetitions on those, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, continue on to like the orange ones and the yellow and then the other ones and you know, you just, you know, the easy stuff, you don't have to practice as much. So you try to optimize your time that way, um, to make that kind of stuff work. Um, yeah, I think being a success, uh, who was it that said it's not about you? Was that Rodney? Yes. Yeah, that was Rodney. That's, that's absolutely true. You have to, you have to remember it's, it's definitely like not about, um, it's not about the drums or the drummer or about like whatever you've got to really kind of have a, I think kind of a, a, like a, a service mindset in a way, you know what I mean? You've got to kind of really look at it like, okay, how can I, how can I make the music director's job easier? How can I like make this better? How do I fit into this huge thing? How, what, what's the best way for me to make my part you know, the best, but fit into what's going on. And just remembering that it's not about you is good. I don't remember if it was on the podcast or if it was just in person, but Warren um, also was talking about like you, the empathy you have to have for like the MD and like understanding, like, is there, is they're trying to push you and pull you and move the show around and make it fit and whatever, man, it is. I mean, they, that's a hard gig being a, a Broadway music director. Um, you know, making a Broadway show is a major undertaking. It is, they are huge, huge, uh, organizations and, you know, organisms, and there's all kinds of things going on that you'll never know about <laughs> if you're, when you're, when you're a pit musician, or even if you're the drummer, cause you're kind of around like some of it, but not always, you know, um, and it's just so just being like having that, like kind of yes. And, and like a humble attitude about it, I think is really important. So rent, Evita, Matilda, mm-hmm. 
Avenue Q, Cats, Hello Dolly, Anastasia, The Prom. Subbing at all those shows. Yeah. Your first time subbing, and afterwards, if you're looking at this, I have a pad here, uh-huh. and there's their musical directors writing stuff down. Mm-hmm. When I was subbing at a, a bunch of different shows, I would always be nervous because when they when I see the musical director writing stuff down, I think, oh my god, she's writing uh-huh. stuff about me. Uh-huh. So taking yep. notes. Mm-hmm. What is your approach to taking notes after your first or second or third time subbing a show? Yeah, um, whoever's giving you the note is always right. You just have to under they 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 are they're for sure right. Um, as I was telling you earlier, I just played my uh, my first show at Come From Away yesterday, um, and I got a couple notes, a couple like little dynamic notes and stuff after the fact, it's, and it's great. Um, they're really sweet over there. Everybody really wants everyone to be successful, and so it, they come from a very like supportive place. But yeah, I mean the notes you just they, the notes are right. Take the notes. Um, the reason you'll not be asked back at a show is because you're not taking the notes. Probably that could probably be one of the chief things that could be a reason why if you play it a few times and they're like, Oh, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be working. You know, that that's probably, that could very well be a reason, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think what the thing is I do. I, I'm similar to, um, I think actually, I think Sean has talked about this, uh, Sean McDaniel, um, on the podcast and in, in, in life, you know, I don't want to, ha- I don't want to be practicing the show like after my first or second show, you know what I mean? Like that's how well you should know the show. Like before you go in, like you shouldn't need to practice. Now, if there's like a particular passage that's really technical or like, you know um, you know how it goes with some of our books. There's like a lot of like choreography as I call it, like the switching sticks to mallets to beater to like whatever. If there's a moment like that you want to go over, that's not, that's a different thing. But I mean, as far as like really like shedding and like internalizing it and learning it, that should all be done before your first show. So you shouldn't hopefully, I mean, and again, it depends on the timeline, right? If you've got two months to prepare, that's different than a week. You know, So it's a different thing. Um, but yeah, I try to learn it so well that I don't have to practice it much. And so most notes, hopefully the notes that you're getting are, are notes that are related to just internal things about like the balance or being with another instrument in the band or something like that. And those kind of things, if you're, if you've prepared, appropriately and you're a good enough musician behind the drums you should be able to do that without like practicing it if someone says hey the cross stick was too loud at the first chorus in that number you should just be able to write that in your music and just do it differently next time like that should be fine you know what i mean hopefully those are the kind of notes that you're getting and not like oh man it just doesn't feel right like that's when it's that's the worst you know when you get like one of those notes it's like oh no oh man i I don't know i don't know what to do with that like that's tough you know yeah, the, that's no that you don't want to get because yeah, you may not be asked back. Exactly. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of people go down because they think that they have it and they don't have the right feel, or it's not in their wheelhouse. They thought yeah. that they can do it, but preparation is key. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to kind of go back to something that we didn't really talk about. A lot of people don't necessarily like this question. Mm-hmm. Your top five favorite drummers of all time? Oh boy, sure. Uh, man, top five. Um, and why? Uh huh. Well, I'll start. Well, I, this can't be in any kind of order. Cause we, oh yeah. <laughs> it'll yeah, never yeah, be yeah. in an order for me. I'll start with the one I know is your favorite that you love to hear on every podcast is Steve Gadd. Of course. Cause like it's, it's Steve Gadd. Um, so my, my first exposure to him was, um, actually I, I looked it up in preparation for this. I think it was like the April 1998 modern drummer or something. He's on the cover. 
Um, he and Brendan Hill, who from Blues Traveler, was the, was the other guy on the the name on the cover, who's also like one of my favorite bands that I listened to all the time when I was um, you know, in my more younger formative years, um, and still do, still listen to them. I love them. Um, but he, they had an article about him, and this is you know, this is like he's already been playing with like James Taylor and Chick and everybody. I mean, he and he's just he's already at that point you know, almost 20 years ago or whatever, super establishes like just one of the giants, you know? Um, but they had in the article, they had like, they had, I think it was Chick Corea was one of the people, James Taylor was one of the people. And one of like the, a couple of the big record producers of records that he had played on talking about him and what they all love about him and his playing. And so much of it was always directed at like, he just, he serves the music. He plays the music. It's not him trying to show off. He's just, he's doing this. And then like Chick was talking about like his, his part writing, like I'm playing something for him at the piano and I can see the wheels turning and he's like writing stuff down and bringing me ideas and we're trying stuff and whatever. And that kind of just really like collaborative spirit and like that, um, the fact that the people he had worked with would say those kind of things about him, that made a big impression on me. And that really made me want to be that kind of musician, you know, at the drums. Um, I never set out like trying to be like super, like, choppy and and fast and everything i was never like that kind of player i don't i don't think i don't really think i am that kind of player um i like to play music that like feels good segue into the next one like for example um i was thinking about this guy because i get to see him tomorrow in madison square garden with john mayer but steve ferrone i'm um, we're gonna go see uh see see john mayer the sob rock tour tomorrow my wife and i uh, which i'm psyched about but steve ferrone is in that band um this time around and like i mean Hearing Steve Ferrone play on Wildflowers for Tom Petty, which is again like kind of a late '90s, you know, um, record. Just his like really simple parts, immovable pocket, you know. Even for I mean, I'm probably weird, but like at 15, 16, whatever I was at that age, I was like, wow, man, that's so amazing. Those great sounds. I mean, uh, but at the same time, I was also like obsessed with Carter Beaufort of Dave Matthews Band. He was like a million notes a second, you know. <laughs> totally different. He's got a great groove too, of course, but it's like a very different approach to the instrument. Um, you know, I spent, uh, I think it was eighth grade. So it would be what, like 14. I got the, um, the under the table and drumming DVD or the tape VHS, I think actually VHS. And I spent, um, my whole Christmas break learning to play number 41 on his like open-handed setup with like riding with the left hand and playing the snare with mm. the right, you know, He's got all that like complicated, like between the hi-hat and the ride business and around the kit thing that he does and whatever. So I spent like my whole break learning to play that and learning to play like the mambo groove that my teacher was trying to teach me, which is one of those like you're busy. That was my first busy Latin groove I ever learned, you know. <laughs> Steve Gadd, Steve yeah. Ferrone, uh -huh, two Beaufort. of my favorites too, Carter yeah. Beaufort. Yeah, I love Steve Ferrone. I wish I, um, I still regret that I never got to see him play with Tom Petty. You know, I wish I'd made time. And, and money or whatever to do that. Well, I'm going to be posting something because he's one of my big influences. Yeah. Uh, on the Broadway drumming 101 newsletter talking about some of my influences, but there's mm -hmm. a, there's some footage of him playing with Shaka Khan in 1981, which, Oh man, I love that era because he was on a lot of records that I, that I grew up listening mm -hmm. to back then and just watching him play those songs and with the same band that recorded a lot of those things back in the day, like uh, mm -hmm. Anthony Jackson on bass and wow. his feel and just his style and some of the cool things he does with the hi-hat, mm -hmm. just, just, just perfect to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And are you talking um, about 
Oh, we'll, we'll get to the other two. I'm sure you have mm-hmm. two more. Two more drummers. Yeah. Oh, sure, wait, sure. Before you go on, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> I just thought about this. You you grew up playing uh, worship music. Mm-hmm. I know that there was at a time this thing called gospel chops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there worship chops? Ah, <laughs> worship chops are uh, <laughs> like we were talking about. Your ride symbol has to be super washy, like no articulation. Just has to be shh, you know, in the back of the track. Um, I think worship chops. You also have to play like crazy held back, like all the time. Like the time has to be really held back. It's never pushing. You know what I mean? Like those, like the, the record. I'm thinking of like the Hill songs and like the um, the Chris Tomlin records. It's like they recorded the whole record and then took the drums and went, "We're gonna nudge it back in time, like about <laughs> 50 milliseconds or something, you know, whatever, whatever the number would be." And it's like it's just so like held and like firm and solid and never rushes. You know, I guess that would be like worship chops. You know, if there is such a thing, I have no idea. Uh, somebody should come up with a DVC. I get get ideas. You do worship chops the DVD or the VHS. <laughs> Let's bring it back. Yeah. So anyway, I, I digress. Mm-hmm. Two other drummers. I'm just curious who mm-hmm. were some of your influences. Yeah, like the like I said earlier, Collective Soul, like Shane Evans. Um, he's like those records have always been my favorite. It's almost more about like the it's about the band than about the. Um, the 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 producers even as much as it is about the drummer sometimes i'm realizing as i get older and i realize i look back and think about what did i like about this record or this song or like whatever i, I realize so much of it is it's the sound of the drums which is you know um often like equal equal parts both um you know the uh uh the what you call the drummer and the producer you know um so learning about like that kind of stuff um yeah, like I love those early Collective Soul records and the way that he plays in the style. Blues Traveler, Brendan Hill. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. I kind of like didn't really study a lot of um, like drum set stuff when I was in college. You know what I mean? It was kind of a weird like thing. So it was still like I was I was doing all the symphonic stuff, which is a different, just kind of a different mm-hmm. thing. Do you do a lot of teaching, and where do you do that? I haven't done much here recently. I did tons when I was in Texas. Um, when you're, when you're in Houston, you know, like every high school, they're all massive. They're all like, God, like a thousand kids or more or something. They're just like these massive schools and every school has a marching band and like every school has a band wing with like a full auditorium and like two band halls and a place for the choir and like everything else. It's wild. Um, it's crazy because the foot, I think it all stems from like the football program. They have like the football stadium. They need the big marching band that matches the football vibe. Um, so every like high school in, in Houston has like a 200 kid marching band, you know, in color guard or whatever. So you've got like, you like, you go to Houston and it's like, instantly it's like, Oh, you, you're a drummer. Great. Can you teach? Cool. Here's 30 private lessons, like instantly everywhere. Um, so you're constantly doing stuff like that in New York. It's way harder is the thing. Cause it's the drums are loud. <laughs> you know, it's not the best thing for vertical apartment living. Um, you know, people get annoyed by it pretty easily and, you know, right, rightfully so probably. You know, um, so it's harder to do here. I do have a studio in Midtown where I practice and I can teach there and I have done some lessons there. Um, it's one of those things I haven't really like pursued it a whole lot, which is, you know, might be to my detriment. Um, but yeah, I do teach, um, you know, I try to, it's not teaching, I guess, but like the informal, like doing this kind of thing that we're doing with like somebody who's like younger and coming up in the scene or whatever. I've had a few people approach me be like, Hey, I'm working on a book. Can I come play it for you? You know? 
or like, you know, is, is that cool? I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course. Like, you know, they try to, you know, accommodate stuff like that. You know, are you, um, currently working on any shows or any kind of musical things right now? I know you're doing other things outside of music, but is there any kind of mm -hmm. musical thing that you're working on? Yeah. My next show that's coming up, I'm doing an off Broadway show called between the lines. Um, that's going to be at the Tony Kaiser theater. It's second stage, um, you know, right in midtown. Um, we open like mid June and now allegedly run into October, you know, fingers crossed if it actually Good. goes that long, you know, so a nice, like long off Broadway run. That's great. Yeah. So looking forward to that. We're actually starting like starting the work, uh, like the, the prep work and the, you know, the, the pre working stuff on that, like pretty soon here. So that'll start up soon. That's great. Yeah. It's a fun show. It's kind of a poppy thing. Greg is uh, Greg Anthony, my 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 go to, you know, one person who always hired. I'm lucky enough to be hired by occasionally, you know, um, it's going to be a, the book is going to be like drum set with like vibraphone and bells and some other stuff um, and kind of have a um, it's pretty poppy. A lot of it's fairly poppy stuff. So it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to play. Um, we got a good band assembled and stuff. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so make sure you bring that crash ride symbol to have that big wash sound yeah for sure you gotta have the worship vibe for sure <laughs> worship know. chops bring gotta the worship chops to, to broadway yeah for sure <laughs> where can people find you on social media they can find me on uh facebook and instagram and twitter i'm uh i think on instagram and twitter my handle is adam wolf music um and uh you can find me i have a website adamwolfmusic.com um yeah that's the easiest place to find me I'm on Facebook just as my myself. I don't have like a, a, a player or artist page or whatever it is. You can find me there. Um, just shoot me a message, you know, if you're in the city. I mean, it's one of those things. It's 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 with COVID, it's just such a drag. I know it's so hard to have people like come watch a show and come sit in your, your setup and stuff. And so maybe, I don't know, this summer, who knows, maybe that'll change. But right currently, the climate is that everybody is pretty conservative as far as having people who don't really have to be in the building, like in the building. So it's real hard, unfortunately, right now to get people in to like watch stuff, which is too bad because it really is like, like I said, it really is the greatest thing to be able to like just go in and watch people play these books. Um, and it's just such an education when you when you're lucky enough to get to sub for someone and you get or make the materials to do so and you get to go so deep into their playing and how they do what they do in this very particular context that is musical theater where you're balancing so many things and often things that are like not musical, you know, they're not specific to music. It's that's you're balancing all these other like issues at the time. And it's, a, it's really cool to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad that we, uh, we don't get to do that as much right now, but hopefully we'll soon we'll get to a point where we can all like be in the same spaces again. And it's not going to be so regimented about who and when and everything. And we'll be able to do that. Do you want to talk about the real estate thing? Sure. Sure. I actually, I, I actually find it, um, like I was saying, it actually really, to me, it's very, um, it's all part of the same thing and it's all part of life and it's all part of this, the, the overall deal. Um, I think, yeah, if you look, it says like LCMYCDO, I didn't turn that off. I probably should turn that off. That's the name of my wife's real estate team. And it's DO because I'm director of operations on the team is the closest. It's, that's a very fancy title for saying I do high level admin work and, you know, kind of the utility player at this point, I kind of do whatever needs to be done if it's a showing or whatever, whatever's got to happen. Uh, but no, so over the pandemic, so I, I was telling you previously, like my wife has been a real estate agent here in New York City for uh, seven or eight years now. Um, we got married about three years ago and I got my real estate license in mid 2019. 
because I was, I was coming out of a, a spate of, you know, learning a lot of shows and subbing on some stuff. And I'd kind of reached that point where I wasn't busy with prep anymore. And I just, um, it became clear that like, she was, she was really busy. And I was like, well, if I could get my license, then I could, you know, help out with easy stuff. So we did that. And then lo and behold, a few months later, like the whole Broadway world shut down and I was suddenly had like all this time on my hands. So we decided to have me kind of like join the team, like full time, basically for a lot of that pandemic shutdown period, which was great for us in terms of the real estate thing. It really freed her up to do more. We had a really fabulous year last year, 2021 um, was our, like her best year in the business ever. And it's, it's, we're, we're growing our team. We're hiring new agents onto the team and stuff like pretty routinely right now. And um, so overall it's been, it's been great. And I just, I think it was one of those things where um, during the pandemic, I mean, a lot of us had to do other things other than music, you know, to keep ourselves busy and keep ourselves, um, you know, uh, afloat and everything. And um, yeah, I just think I, I consider myself very fortunate that I even had it to go into because it's not any, it was, really not a good time or a very difficult time, I should say to like to be starting a real estate business, like during the pandemic or something. But thankfully my wife already had an established business that she'd been working on for like, you know, like I said, a number of years. So me coming on and being sort of extra labor for her was really just gas on the fire that she already had going. And it just, we were able to kind of blow it up like fairly quickly. So hopefully we can continue that. To be honest, I'm not sure I really want to like ever stop it, you know, to be honest, like, even if I, like I said, I, I, have an off-Broadway show coming up. I'm going to be there a lot, you know, and going to be playing a lot of shows a week. And like, that's what it's going to be, but I'm still going to be doing this, the real estate stuff. I think in my off time, I think it's really, I I've enjoyed using a different part of my brain, you know, than just um, like hammering away at the same, you know, music thing all the time. Although I do love doing that too. Um, I see, I think my, I've learned that my mind seems to like thrive on like some variety in this way. Like, um, like I said, I just did my first show at come from away, like doing all that prep and getting to do that and go to the, go to the studio and shed, like felt really good. It's a break from the other thing I've been doing so much. You know what I mean? So having that variety, I think is really good. And I, I don't think we should, um, I don't think it should be a requirement to like be a musician that you're like just full-time, like all the time, you know, necessarily. Although I, I get where people are coming from, what it's like, I think it's, who is it? It's like, I feel like, a, it's like the Tommy Igo or somebody has a, a thing about like, if you can do anything else, if you can see yourself doing anything else, do it. Otherwise don't do a career in music or something. You know what I mean? Like that's one of those, like, I hope I'm not misquoting it. It, it isn't him. I'm sure that's probably multiple people I would imagine have something like that, but it's true. Like a music career is very difficult. Um, you know, like I was saying, even with the orchestras, like, you know, you watch, you, you win a full-time job in a symphony orchestra and then your orchestra might fold or like, we still see, um, you know, really unfair labor things happening with orchestras. They just decide they don't, they want to renegotiate and they want to start paying you half and they want to cut your benefits and whatever. And it's like that these things happen there too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like diversifying some things and just having, uh, you know, multiple things going on in your life is, is not a bad thing necessarily. You know, I mean, God bless if you can find a way to do music full time and you're, if you consider the diversification of that being like teaching and producing and like whatever else, like great, like more power to you for sure. Um, for me, it's been, it's been very good for like me and for my family to like have the, um, to, to have me doing some of the real estate stuff too. And I enjoy it for the most part. There's parts I don't like, of course, there's always parts that any job that are like a little bit of a drag, but you know, most of it, I, I really enjoy and it's been, it's been good. And at this point I'm fortunate too. like our team is getting big enough that like my role is evolving into, um, I'm not really like agenting as much, meaning like, I'm not really like 
showing property as much or uh, doing stuff where it's like, it's gotta be a really specific time on the calendar. So we're trying to transition to me more to doing like kind of bigger picture supervising things within the business that like need to get done, but they're like project based. It just has to get done. It doesn't have to be done on Tuesday at four o'clock or whatever. You know what I mean? So that fits into the music schedule like way better. Cause that means if I, if I'm doing a reading or if I'm doing tech or I'm doing whatever, I just got to get it, get the stuff done in my off time, you know? Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to give up like, Oh, I, I would do the reading, but I can't, you know, I can't be there on Saturdays ever. You know, th- th- that doesn't work for like the music thing. You got to be able to commit to the whole gig when it's a lot of the gigs, you know, it kind of requires that. So what's the name of the company again? We, we are uh, the, the LCMYC team at Keller Williams, New York City. Laura, LC for my wife, Laura Cook. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, she's the, she's the, the brains of the outfit for sure. She is the, um, she's the, the team like leader kind of thing. Like she's really uh, fabulous and it's a very, very good, um, good agent and stuff. I'm very lucky just to be able to, um, you know, to, that she's so good at it and be able to like come along and kind of support her has been like a good thing for us for sure. Um, yeah. LC slash NYC. Mm-hmm. LC NYC real estate team. Adam Wolf music.com. Mm-hmm. Broadway drumming one dot com. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being yeah. here. And, uh, my pleasure. So, so nice to talk to you and thanks for having me. And uh, I was going to say, when, do, when is someone going to like interview you? Like you, there's little like <laughs> tidbits of you and all these like interviews. That's great. But when are we going to get someone who's going to interview you? That's a good question. We should do that. I know you've got, I bet you've got lots of great insight and stories and you know, you should do a split screen thing. I was about to say, like, you know, <laughs> put on a green Clayton. shirt and a red shirt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you think about? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a good, that's a, you know, another idea. There you go. I'm looking forward to possibly seeing your show down the road and I hope it yeah, runs, thanks, hope it gets extended and goes to Broadway and you yeah, make thank you. $3 million and, and you can retire <laughs> from Broadway and do this on the side. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we'll talk soon, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.